Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. In today's episode, we move from a bird's eye view of Ezekiel to a step by step journey through its pages. As we catch a glimpse of Ezekiel's vision of God in the opening chapters, we'll clear up some massive confusion about what's being depicted and glean some important insights about being captivated by God's overwhelming presence to save and to judge. So if you check out this podcast through our site, buythebookresources.com, again, that's buythebookresources.com, and hit the Rebind Podcast tab. When you play an episode, you'll see buttons specific to that episode in the window, and you can use them to interact with the content. So if we have an interview going on, you can click a button that takes you to the profile of the guest. Or if we're studying a passage, you can click a button that pulls it up on the Bible Gateway website. So as we study the opening chapters of Ezekiel today, if you want to have the chapter right in front of you on your phone or computer, feel free to check out buythebookresources.com and click on those buttons for this episode. All right, well, enough housekeeping stuff. We're diving into the first three chapters of Ezekiel. This important introduction and preface to the prophecies that follow in the book. Now, this introduction is sophisticated and multifaceted. They highlight uh, not only Ezekiel's overwhelming vision of God, but also God's empowering vision for Ezekiel and his prophetic ministry. Conveniently, the first chapter really focuses on that first part, Ezekiel's vision of God, Well, chapters two and three really focus on that second part, God's vision for Ezekiel. So that's how we'll be splitting up the podcast episodes this week and the next. Uh, Still, it's worth keeping in mind that all three chapters are one literary unit. They're meant to go together, even as we focus on the different parts and aspects of that message for convenience. Now, me talking about Ezekiel chapter 1 will be pretty useless if you aren't familiar with what it says. What's more, it's the scripture itself, not my comments about it, that has the potential to change your life. So, I've asked Stephanie to read Ezekiel 1.1 to 2.5 for us here on the podcast. Now, if you'd prefer to study this on your own first or read it in your preferred translation, that's great. You can pause this and go ahead and do that. Or if you feel like you're familiar with the introduction to Ezekiel already, you can skip ahead about six minutes and we'll dive into discussing it. This is Ezekiel 1, 1 through 2, 5. I'll be reading from the New English translation. In the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was among the exiles at the Kibar River, the heavens opened and I saw a divine vision. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the Lord's message came to the priest Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, at the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. The hand of the Lord came on him there. As I watched, I noticed a windstorm coming from the north, an enormous cloud with lightning flashing such that bright light rimmed it and came from it like a glowing amber from the midst of a fire. In the fire were what looked like four living beings. In their appearance they had human form, but each had four faces and four wings. 
Their legs were straight, but the soles of their feet were like calves' feet. They gleamed like polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched each other. They did not turn as they moved, but went straight ahead. Their faces had this appearance. Each of the four had the face of a man, with the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and also the face of an eagle. Their wings were spread out above them. Each had two wings touching the wings of one of the other beings on either side and two wings covering their bodies. Each moved straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. In the middle of the beings was something like burning coals of fire or like torches. It moved back and forth among the living beings. It was bright, and lightning was flashing out of the fire. The living beings moved backward and forward as quickly as flashes of lightning. Then I looked, and I saw one wheel on the ground beside each of the four beings. The appearance of the wheels and their construction was like gleaming jasper, and all four wheels looked alike. Their structure was like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they would go in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. Their rims were high and awesome, and the rims of all four wheels were full of eyes all around. When the living beings moved, the wheels beside them moved. When the living beings rose up from the ground, the wheels rose up too. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise up beside them because the spirit of the living being was in the wheel. When the living beings moved, the wheels moved, and when they stopped moving, the wheels stopped. When they rose up from the ground, the wheels rose up from the ground. The wheels rose up beside them because the spirit of the living being was in the wheel. Over the heads of the living beings was something like a platform, glittering awesomely like ice, stretched out over their heads. Under the platform, their wings were stretched out, each toward the other. Each of the beings also had two wings covering its body. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings. It was like the sound of rushing waters, or the voice of the Sovereign One, or the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there was a voice from above the platform over their heads when they stood still. Above the platform over their heads was something like a sapphire shaped like a throne. High above on the throne was a form that appeared to be a man. I saw an amber glow like fire enclosed all around from his waist up. From his waist down, I saw something that looked like fire. There was a brilliant light around it, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds after the rain. This was the appearance of the surrounding brilliant light. It looked like the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I threw myself face down, and I heard a voice speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. As he spoke to me, 
a wind came into me and stood me on my feet, and I heard the one speaking to me. He said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the house of Israel, to rebellious nations who have rebelled against me. Both they and their fathers have revolted against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and hard-hearted, and you must say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Now, if you recall from our other episodes, we're after three things here on the podcast. The first is to clear up confusion about what we're reading. If we don't understand it, we can't get what we're supposed to out of it. The second thing is to draw out that passages or books unique contribution to the Christian message. And finally, we don't want to stop there. We want to flesh out the practical difference that can make in our lives and its intersection with culture. Now, with that said, some passages warrant more explanation than others, and this is definitely one of those. There's been a lot of confusion about what the heck is happening here that we should clear up. So let's get going right away on that so we can draw out the significance and impact of it all as a result. What is Ezekiel actually seeing here? How is he seeing it, and how does it relate to everything else we read in the book? Like we talked about in our first episode on Ezekiel, discussing our first impressions of the book, people have done a lot of crazy stuff with these opening chapters and its vision of God. Anything from psychotic analysis to UFO sightings. But if we want to clear up the confusion and get the point of what it's trying to say, we need to take our cues from the text itself. And conveniently, the text actually gives us explicit indications of how it wants us to read it. Right off the bat, in the first verse, Ezekiel the prophet says he was among the exiles on the Kibar Canal, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God, or I visioned divine visions. Now, we can look at that and say, huh, maybe Ezekiel was just chilling with his Kibar buddies, and he looked up, and boom, there he saw God, like a, like a theophany is what they call it, a divine appearance. Like when he appeared in a pillar of fire or, you know, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. It must be like that. God must be condescending to show us a physical representation of himself. And we should try to decode the symbols in this chapter to sketch out a picture of what it all looked like. Well, if we dig a little deeper and do some research, we realize, nope, that, uh, that can't be it. That's not the point. First off, though, Ezekiel is with other exiles, only he sees the vision, right? It's not a pillar of fire that everyone marvels at. It's an experience the prophet describes as he alone encounters God in this spiritual, God-given way. But what's more, the word Ezekiel uses to describe these visions, marot in Hebrew, is used at a couple of other key places in the book. So once more, in chapter 8, as he's describing his vision of the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. And finally, we get it again towards the end, in chapter 40, where he's describing his vision 
of God's glory inhabiting a new kind of temple and society. So remember, the biblical authors, inspired by the Spirit of God, are literary geniuses. Trust me, this this stuff is brilliant, deep and sophisticated word plays, interconnecting structures, and on and on. So Ezekiel, I think, is using this type of experience, his morot, his divine visions, to bookmark key parts of the book. Once in this really important preface, once in the section of judgment describing God's glory leaving the temple, and once at the end where it comes back in redemption and holiness. He even says in chapter 8, verse 4, I saw the glory of God of Israel there, like the vision I had seen in the plain. He's spelling out those connections for us. So what do those connections tell us about how we're supposed to read this opening section? Well, for one thing, it highlights its importance. These divine visions, these morot, serve as the backbone of the different sections of the book, relating everything that was happening in the people's lives, everything that mattered about life and death and judgment and hope, to the movement of God's holy presence. Is he here? Is he moving towards us? Why or why not? These earth-shattering, overwhelming visions rip into the earthly troubles and self-deceptions of the people, and they're all interpreted in light of these otherworldly realities. So that's one thing. This is an important section of the book that helps us interpret the book as a whole. The otherworldly presence and movement of God's holiness, his glory, is what crashes into the troubled universe of the exiles and makes sense of it. It makes sense of the book as a whole, too. This is the backbone of the -the on-the-ground prophecies and interactions that Ezekiel has. Now, why am I saying otherworldly? Well, the way these divine visions, these morot, are described in other places, like chapters 8 and 40, they portray Ezekiel as being transported, but by means of these divine visions. Chapter 8, verse 3 says Ezekiel was brought by the Spirit of God to Jerusalem in divine visions. So it's like we're pulling back the curtain of four-dimensional reality and glimpsing other greater realities that we normally aren't privileged to. The heavens are opened, the first verse says, and the only thing this prophet can do is try to depict this spiritual, intangible encounter with symbols or images that convey to us what God was getting him to experience and understand. Or... God is descending to relay his message to Ezekiel in ways that he can understand, portraying otherworldly realities in four-dimensional terms. All right, so now that we have a grasp on how we're supposed to understand what's happening here from the text itself, let's get into it. What is it that Ezekiel sees? What vision of God does he experience, and why does it matter? Well, remember that the movement of God's holy presence captured in these divine visions are the backbone of the different sections of the book. Is God here? Is he moving towards us? Why? Why not? Well, believe it or not, I'm actually going to keep this simple and brief because the more confident we are of the big picture here in this vision, 
the less intimidated we'll be, I think, by the symbolic details. So let's just think of everything Ezekiel has been describing. Have we seen any of it somewhere else in the Bible? First thing he sees, and remember, sees is in air quotes here. This is fifth dimension, whoa, kind of overwhelming encounter stuff. The first thing he sees is a storm. A great lightning flashing cloud. Sound familiar? Well, let me read a couple of verses for you from the Psalms. Psalm 29, 2 through 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God, excuse me, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, vo- the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Okay, Psalm 104, 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So you hear those common motifs, that common image and metaphor of God portrayed as a violent storm on the move. They're not just creatively making that up for poetry's sake either. You can actually see other places in the Old Testament where the Lord manifests himself in the form of a storm cloud. Listen to Exodus 19.9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Okay, so it turns out this storm stuff, this storm image as a metaphor and manifestation of God, it's not as weird as we thought. Ezekiel's audience would have picked up on that pretty quick. So, what else? What about these super strange creatures? Are we supposed to be thinking of anything when we hear them described? 
Well, this part I'm hesitant to reveal because Ezekiel is intentionally teasing us and wanting the strangeness of it all to make us lean in. It's not until later in the book that this vision gets explained more, but for the sake of clarity, I'll just give the spoiler. Remember how he said in chapter 8, Ezekiel is explicitly spelling out that he's picking up this vision from chapter 1, right? It was just like the glory I had seen in the plains. Well, this is what he says in chapter 10, soon after. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Okay, so spoiler alert, these creatures are actually cherubim. In the opening of Ezekiel, it's like he gets blasted with the shock and awe of what he sees, and it's a little hazy for him. And then when he sees it again, later on, the details start to fill in. These otherworldly creatures are cherubim. Now, I'm not going to poke the bear of angelology for this episode. I'd prefer to keep that can of worms closed for now. But we do know from other parts of the Bible that cherubim, these mysterious angelic figures, are associated with God's holy presence. God sets cherubim to guard the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are cast out. But most of all, golden cherubim statues are actually a key feature of the Ark of the Covenant. Check out Exodus 25.18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And mercy seat, we're just talking about the Ark of the Covenant here. Make one cherubim, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, so we're starting to clear up some confusion here. The storm theophany, the cherubim, it's definitely super strange and otherworldly, but at least it's more understandable now. Now, side note, I've heard the symbols in this chapter, and particularly the creatures, used to draw out lessons about the nature of God. Which, by the way, is great. Don't get me wrong. I love that people are going to Ezekiel's introduction for guidance, theology, and nourishment. But I've often heard it explained as if this vision was just given to pass on a handbook on the attributes of God. The creatures having the face of a lion shows that God is all-powerful. Them having the face of an eagle shows he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, that sort of a thing. Now, the way that God shows up here definitely says something about his character, his power and presence and so forth. But it comes crashing in with a provocative force 
it it backs up the message God is about to give. It's not a postmodern still life painting. It's standing on the shore of an ocean, cranking your neck back as far as it will go to look up at a tidal wave bigger than the Empire State Building, just a mile away, rushing towards you. See the difference? Maybe I'm being too picky, but it's worth knowing that ancient Near Eastern exiles and common folk didn't really think like armchair philosophers or zoologists. There were no zoos or Google search engines. The lines between mythical creatures and exotic creatures, abstract characteristics and concrete actions, they they weren't as strongly divided as we make them out to be today. So yeah, these super strange, four-headed, multi-winged, lion-ox-eagle man-creatures were like the epitome of virtues and strengths. But all of that is supposed to contribute to the woe factor of how this hits us. Not necessarily trivia night. Okay, so enough rabbit trails. I said I was going to keep this simple and brief, so that's what I'll do. We're keeping this straightforward. Where have we seen these images before? Well, we've got the common storm theophany stuff. We've got cherubim. What else? What about the bright throne with the strange person, question mark, sitting on it? Well, we might say, ooh, I know that one, Revelation 1 or even Daniel 7. But those passages actually drew on this passage. Revelation 1 may be using this passage to depict Jesus Christ on his heavenly throne, but Ezekiel 1 isn't, because Jesus isn't incarnate yet. So let's stay current to Ezekiel. What about Isaiah? You may know this one, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, God is spirit. We know from the Bible, God the Father is not a man. That's why the rabbis were so freaked out about Ezekiel chapter 1. But remember, this is a spiritual vision, heavenly realities depicted in earthly images. And God is personal. He is ruling gloriously above all other thrones. So Isaiah and other prophets like Ezekiel depict this kind of heavenly throne room encounter with bright and blinding light so strong you can't even really make out the features of the one sitting on this throne. It's just like a glowing glory. So we've got the storm language, cherubim, the throne vision. At least we're starting to see that this would be a little bit more familiar to Ezekiel's audience, even if those parts are foreign to us. And that's just something that we can get from having a really thorough understanding of the Bible and the Old Testament and reading through it a lot. But now with that in mind, what do we see when we look through Ezekiel's visionary eyes? Well, let's run through it. First off, we've got this powerful, thundering depiction of God's mighty presence with magnificent and otherworldly creatures, spoiler, cherubim, swirling around. 
But then we see that the creatures are actually associated with wheels. Strange wheels, magnificent, completely mobile wheels, and the spirit of the creatures are in the wheels. So in some strange fifth-dimensional way where language fails to depict what's happening, the cherubim are serving to move this entity, this whole thing. And that's also depicted with wheels. So we've got wheels. And then we keep looking up, and we see that above these wheels, there's an expanse, another layer, with a seat and someone on it. Now, what's that sound like? I don't think most of us associate wheels as standalone objects, as if the creatures are just chilling over there, the throne room is floating up in the sky somewhere, and the wheels are just swirling around in the sky somewhere else. Like, ancient Near Eastern Israelites did not have Beyblades or Decepticons. When we see wheels, just like them, we typically think of a vehicle of some sort. And if there's something on top of it, it's part of the vehicle. So we got wheels. And there's something sitting on the wheels, and there's a seat, there's a throne, someone on it. On this thing with wheels. What's that sound like? A chariot. A chariot, right? I mean, not a normal chariot, unless you know of one that has a million eyeballs all over the wheels with spirit creatures inhabiting them, but the gist is there. This is a mobile throne room. This is a vision of God on the move. Now, what might those other things that we talked about have to do with it? Why cherubim? Why a throne seat? Why God's magnificent presence? What might we typically associate with those things for those of you familiar with your Old Testaments? The temple. We read earlier how golden statues of cherubim were a part of the Ark of the Covenant, which manifested a kind of concentrated glory of God's presence. We saw in Exodus how this thunderous manifestation of God And a cloud was part of his condescending to be with his people, holy as he is. Well, when King Solomon dedicates the Jerusalem temple to God, 1 Kings 8, 10-13 says, When the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. So hopefully now you feel like you've got a lot better grasp on what's being depicted in Ezekiel's vision of God. What's the backdrop of that? What are these people thinking about when we hear of these symbols and images? Even if we're a little fuzzy on what to do with it, hopefully we at least have a better understanding of how Ezekiel's audience would have understood the symbols, what the big picture of it all was conveying. God, the mighty, holy Lord who met with Moses and descended on the Jerusalem temple, is on the move. His throne is mobile and like a tidal wave right in front of him, it's all coming, crashing in towards Ezekiel and his fellow exiles. The strangeness of it all only enhances the woe factor of how it hits us. 
humbling us, reorienting us, shocking us, and snapping us out of the status quo long enough to hear what God has to say. Now, if that helps us understand what's being said, how can we draw out the significance of that? What does that contribute to the Christian message, and how can that impact us where we're living today? Well, think about the audience here and what they're experiencing. If you remember our episode from a couple of weeks ago, the Babylonians have taken over this big international superpower, the big head honchos, the bad guys, and these people are cynical, confused, frustrated, doubting, depressed. Think about what Ezekiel chapter 1 means from that Israelite's perspective, from the perspective of one of those deported Jewish exiles removed from their homeland. If the temple is back in Jerusalem, what hope do they have of connecting with God, of hearing from him, of gaining hope from his presence? The answer in their minds to all of that is none, no chance. And it's into that despair, that hard-heartedness, that this vision comes crashing in. God is not landlocked in Israel. He is present, overwhelmingly present, right where they are. But we can't just stop there and get encouragement for the week and move on, because that's not really the image that we're given of God in this passage, meek and mild and comforting his stranded sheep. If being so far from the temple had the potential of making people feel hopeless, it also had the potential of making them feel complacent and disillusioned. If some people were asking, what hope do I have of connecting with finding hope in God so far from his temple? There were others who were asking, what chance is there that God's going to continue to hunt me down and call me out all the way over here? After the Babylonians have already taken everything away and Jerusalem remains the center of attention. Well, none. I'm in the clear. Time to forget about God. Whether they thought that out loud or it was just a quiet whisper in the back of their minds, that's also what God comes crashing into to say, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they refuse or hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. That image of a storm cloud and a thundering chariot, it's not a peaceful scene. It's not as clear-cut as it is in other places, but it's an image of a divine warrior king a holy, glorious God over all, flashing forth flames of fire, those psalms declared, shaking the wilderness with his voice. For those of us who may be taken aback or even offended by that image, Yahweh, the warrior God, bringing down a thunderous sword of judgment, I think it's important to step outside our circumstances for just a minute. In affluent 21st century America, where we are a tiny, tiny blip on the timeline of history, a tiny, tiny blip on the map of the world, where most of the violence we see and experience comes from Game of Thrones, 
It's not the same as what most other people in the world and in history experience. When your husband is slaughtered by the Edomites who pillage your town after the Babylonian strike, when apartheid leaves you crippled because someone just absolutely hated who you were and committed genocide, you don't want Oprah as your god. You want a warrior king who's big enough to take on the warriors that destroyed everything that's good in your life. In this chapter, it's God's presence to save and to judge. And here especially, mostly to judge. It's that powerful vision that overwhelms the status quo when it threatens to overwhelm us instead. And it's that same vision of God's powerful presence to save and to judge that can overwhelm us still in the right way today. I think that's one way Ezekiel 1 contributes to the Christian message as a whole, but that's still kind of abstract. So let's bring this divine morote to this vision of God down to earth. I can't think of anything that's on everyone's minds right now as much as COVID-19. I mean, it's affecting everything. I mean, everything. Our jobs, our grocery shopping, our life savings, our families, you name it. This fast-spreading, potentially deadly illness is, is absolutely overwhelming. Like the Jewish exiles on the Kibar Canal, like Ezekiel himself, We're facing overwhelming odds. We are victims of a broken world, a universe corrupted by sin. And it's changing where we can go and where we can't. For the Jewish exiles, the pandemic already struck. The Babylonians already slaughtered and captured and uprooted their lives. And for some of us trudging through the corona pandemic, we too are struggling with cynicism, confusion, frustration, doubt, a feeling of disillusionment. But what if in the middle of all this, we could peer through Ezekiel's eyes in these opening chapters and get captivated by a different reality? What if we could let the strange, barely comprehensible, spiritual vision of the almighty holy God disillusion us? What if catching COVID-19 and even dying from it wasn't actually the scariest thing on your radar? What if we could glimpse, like actually right now, get a sense for the holy, active, purposeful movement of God taking action, coming to judge and set things right? Talk about a reverent fear of God when you think of that. And what if grabbing the last granola bars and disinfectant wipes was not the greatest thing that could happen to you? What if the vaccine wasn't the thing you actually needed the most? Now, of course, God is omniscient, omnipresent. He's not actually hopping around on the clouds in a weird-looking chariot thing. He's not a part of our material world. He's everywhere in that sense. But when we think about Ezekiel's vision of God and what God said, I am moving, I am here, I am not happy. 
that overwhelming holy God we get a taste for in this chapter. And when we think about where we stand with him as Christians and why, it'll absolutely transform your experience in quarantine. I guarantee it. God's presence to save and to judge overwhelms the alternative realities of the world when they threaten to overwhelm us instead. I think we're accustomed to thinking about God's presence as evangelicals. We often hear in churches how the Holy Spirit indwells us and how Christ is with us. But I think what's often missing and what this passage helps provide is the woe factor of that, that gives it enough weight to face something as heavy as a pandemic. As caught up as we can get in the crises of this life, there is actually something bigger and more consequential and longer-lasting reflected in what we do with the lives we have, how we respond to the God that's there when we peel back these four dimensions, how much we account for his power to save and to judge. Because, you know, he's there. He, he's here right now. He, he will be there in the hospital bed when corona saps your strength. He will be there, and you will be there after you pass away on that hospital bed. He will be there, too, if you make it through unscathed, live to be 87, and pass away some other way instead. And the feeling you have in his presence, looking up with your neck cranked as far as it'll go, standing on the shore of an ocean with a hurricane tidal wave right in front of you. If we could have that feeling now, not just for the humble reverence, but for the lasting confidence and perspective, Man, I can't tell you how much that could enrich us and equip us as followers of Christ, especially in this season. So maybe give the introduction to Ezekiel another read this week. Sit there, let it hit you with its tidal wave, overwhelming vision, and let that become your own vision to get you through this crisis. Yet, as followers of Christ, we can't just keep our eyes on ourselves, important as that introspection may be. We have a mission, a kingdom and king to serve, a witness for the world, a ministry, just like Ezekiel had a ministry. Remember that Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 are all one unit, and one side of that coin that we looked at today is Ezekiel's vision of God. But the other side of that coin is God's vision for Ezekiel and his message to the people. That's what we'll be tackling next time we pick up this series, fleshing out not just how to cope with COVID-19, but how to be the salt and light of the world in the midst of the crisis. I hope you'll join me for that. But now as we close, I want to pray the words of a couple of collects from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. These colics are prayed at our church every Sunday during the close of Epiphany and the start of Lent. I've found these particularly relevant to what we've been talking about today. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, 
Grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, and by the continued interest of listeners like you. If you find these episodes helpful, be sure to spread the word. Until next time. Thank you.